This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. Our Ramser Artist of the Month for February is Amethyst Kia. Amethyst Kia's new single, Black Myself, out February 19th on Rounder Records, courtesy of Ramser Management. Pre-save the new single on Spotify and Apple Music today. Follow Amethyst Kia on social media, at Amethyst Kia, or visit www.amethystkia.com for more info. That's www.amythystkiah.com. Hey everyone, just wanted to start this episode off with a special thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. You all have kept us going. You provide the support that allows us to keep Gary doing these edits to to put out good material. So really, really, really thank you for this. We're doing a lot of things over on Patreon. If you'd like to check us out, you can go to patreon.com slash the road to now. We've got lots of extras, bonus episodes, we've got video. For example, we put portions of our Ken Burns interview with a video on Patreon before it launched. We got access to the full back catalog of episodes, which are not always available. And sometimes you even get a special Valentine's Day card for me and Bob. So go check it out, patreon.com slash the road to now. And beginning this month and if you're listening to this the day it comes out the following thursday that will be february 18th at 9 p.m eastern i will be hosting patreon trivia with prizes for the winners it's pub style trivia you guys can come join a team meet some of your fellow listeners you might not know and uh just have some fun we did one of these for our holiday party and it was a blast so check us out join us patreon.com slash the road to now and if you're already there Thank you, thank you, thank you. You really, you really make this possible. We hope to see you there. Now enjoy the show. Ken Burns, welcome to The Road to Now. Thank you so much for having me. I love that title. I think that's exactly right. Thank you so much. Uh, We're going to get to Ernest Hemingway in just a moment. But first, we have you here on the first day of the second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. This is the first time this has ever happened in the history of this country, a second impeachment trial for a president. He was, of course, impeached while he was still president. The trial will begin now as he's a former president. What are your thoughts on a day like today? Well, it's a hugely important thing, and I think we're on a a particularly a difficult moment in American history, obviously. We're on a kind of precipice or a cusp between one thing and the other. And what it represents is the rule of law. As Republican Senator uh, Mitt Romney said, if inciting an insurrection at the seat of the symbol of our democratic government isn't impeachable and therefore removable, what is? What is? And so I think... um, we begin to see this is where the rubber meets the road, whether you serve your parties or your short-term political interests or you serve your country. And that's a big, big question. Uh, And at times it has been, uh, each party has had to face that and has failed or, or, or succeeded. And I think this is a real big test of, of what we believe that's coming up. You've been asked if you are going to do a documentary on Trump or have considered it. Uh, you've pointed out in your, a political article that uh, he only made one appearance in anything you've ever made, and that was related to the Central Park Five. I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of story. 
Because the way that I think about it is what whoever Trump turns out to be in the long term of history, however we view him, he's an incredibly hard character to 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 bring people in on. There's no there's in his own story, there's no loss, there's no turning point, there's no pivot, there's no struggle. The story he tells us is that he has always won and will continue to win. And that is not a protagonist. The per- That's right. The person who cannot see himself any other way is actually the antagonist. Well, he's it's it's a it's an interesting point, Ben. And I think that what I said about not doing it is I need 15, 20, 25 years distance to get the kind of perspective that you need in order to um, not make judgments, but be able to triangulate the various perspectives that that passage of time provides. Um He's difficult, but I don't think it's impossible. I think that's an interesting point. He is, in a way, the classic antagonist. But there's enough uh, there's enough things there. There's enough that's been revealed. And I think that when the fate of a of the greatest country on earth hangs in the balance of his story, that's that that's the drama that you need. I mean, what are we about? Who are we? Do we mean what we say? All of these things have been subverted in the face of a person who felt like autocrats do that, as Louis the Sixteenth said or Louis the Fourteenth said, "L'état c'est moi." The state is me, and he he fully felt that and felt it in his bones uh, that that was it. And so. Um, it, it is a, a story that has not yet played out, I think, in large measure because, Ben, we've we've lacked the ultimate accounting, you know, and whether he's breaking boulders in Sing Sing because the uh, the attorney general of the state of New York or the or the district attorney of of Manhattan or whether the Georgia. Uh, uh, you know, attorney general for manipulation or Florida or all the endless places where there are civil things. Um, it seems to me that um, there's got to be accountability. This is a not a Republican or a Democratic issue. It's it's an American issue. And unfortunately, I think the people who have been wound up in support have been allowed to live in an echo chamber so long they cannot distinguish. Um, the things that are true about us, not just us, the U.S., but us as a as a kind of cohesive uh, people. So it's really important that um, that this become a test of of people. And if you wish to, as a party, as a Republican party, survive, and it's hugely important that there be a vibrant Republican party. Um, some people have to realize that they have to jettison this baggage. Because otherwise, it will bring the party down. Because it will devolve into the kind of uh, conspiracy theory-minded stuff that that isn't. Let, let, let's just back up. You want to know the road to now? At a at a schoolhouse in Ripon, Wisconsin, in 1854, the Republican Party was founded. It had one one idea, and that was the liberation of the African-American slaves. It was going to rise Phoenix-like out of the ashes of the dying and soon-to-be-dead Whig party. And it was going to start, and it became the most successful political party in the United States. And now, does it in any way resemble a party uh, focused intensely on extending civil rights to all Americans? Uh, it then morphed in a post-Civil War way as it was convenient to forget all of that into a party of fiscal responsibility. Has it been that? No. So you've got uh, a complex, it's, a, it's an existential moment for us, lowercase plural pronoun, for the United States, the U.S., and, f- and particularly, I think, for the Republican Party. And um, a good deal, I think, hangs in the balance, a good deal of how much we um, are able to get done in a good way, in a, in a shared way. I mean, I make films about it for everybody. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I keep my politics, I keep a kosher kitchen, you know, my politics <laughs> are my politics, but my films are just straight ahead. You you wrote in this political article that uh, that Ben quoted earlier. Uh, what we recognize in history is a combination of fact and myth, often at war with one another. 
watching uh, Ernest Hemingway, the documentary coming out here in early April on all your everyone's local PBS station. It is mentioned in the film by by someone that that he create Ernest Hemingway created a myth of himself. Yes. What does that tell us? What is her, Ernest? Well, first of all, why Ernest Hemingway? Why now? Yeah, well, I, I mean, we've been working on it for six years, so we don't ever plan with a sense of the moment that it comes out. But I can tell you that, you know, people like to say history repeats itself. Uh, we're condemned to repeat what we don't remember. It's just not true. Mark Twain is supposed to said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And every time we do a film, uh, you know, we might take 10 and a half years as the Vietnam stuff. We lift up and it's like talking about the present. And we never, while we're making it, it would be a dereliction of duty is to focus or, or, or trust on that kind of, of thing. And so, you know, it, I made a film that came out in the in the uh, fall of 17. So you can imagine what was going on as I was promoting it all through the early years of 17. And I said, this is a film. What if I told you I'd been working for over a decade on a film about mass demonstrations taking place all across the country against the current administration, about a White House in disarray, obsessed with leaks, about a president certain the media was lying about him, about huge big document drops of stolen classified information into the public sphere that destabilize the political equation, about asymmetrical warfare that confounded the mighty might of the US military, about accusations that a political party reached out to a foreign government at the time of a national election to affect that election. You'd say, you've been talking about what's been going on for the last, you know, two years. <laughs> and in fact, all of those things were true when I began this project on the Vietnam War at the end of 2006 and remained true when we finished the film, locked the picture at the end of 2015, a month before the Iowa caucuses, out of which Donald Trump was not supposed to emerge. I can take any film that I've made and give you that kind of what if I told you thing. I'm not going to do that. So we've been drawn to Ernest Hemingway. He's arguably, we made a film a few decades ago on Mark Twain, who is arguably the greatest American writer of the 19th century. Hemingway is considered by many the greatest. But in each one, you get a chance to, to go in and understand what makes a human being tick. You get a chance to evaluate in a critical way their art and its transcendent qualities. You get, to, uh, you get to understand the way in which all of us make myths about ourselves. Look, the, the, the fish gets bigger the farther away from the lake you get. You know, you may have the guy that got away is this big, but by the time you get home, it's this big. And, you know, we're, that's human nature, right? And so when you have a large outsized personality, you magnify this very human thing. It's, it's Shakespearean. And that's why Shakespeare is Shakespeare, because he's taking these larger than life people and helps to play out very human and recognizable things. All of us can recognize ourselves in an Ernest Hemingway. We're not as great writers as him. We're not as bad a, a, a husband or a father, perhaps. We're not as uh, complicated in that regard, but we have all of these ingredients. And so we use these mythologically great figures to parse these questions of fact. And my job is to, is to not sort of shun all the mythology, all the ways in which we are blind, but to try to create a framework in which the facts govern the story and you permit uh, the audience the complication of understanding as they know in their own life that nothing's black and white. Everything's a shade of gray. If you think it's black and white, you can't be married. If you think it's black and white, you can't be a parent. You can't even be a, you know, be a pet owner, right? You, you just, things aren't that way. And yet we live in a computer world in which it's all ones and zeros. And we live in a media culture in which it's all good or bad, red state or blue state. And nobody selects for complication, for undertow, for the kinds of things that are the stuff of life, which is what we try to do in our history. So Hemingway is endlessly fascinating for the failures. And he's endlessly fascinating for the way the output of his day job, writing, is transcendent 
and will always be transcendent. And then it turns out that all that ma- masculine posturing hid an incredibly fluid sexuality that nobody could have related to in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, but is totally relatable now, that he wrote stories as if he was a woman and put uh, himself into the character of the woman that the novelist Edna O'Brien says, this is unbelievable. This short story or this novel, th- these things, this is impossible for this guy. And yet it's true. And then we learn more about concussions that he had that may have promoted the uh, CTE that added to alcoholism and drug uh, uh, over and abuses and a history of mental illness in the family and suicides in the family, all of which create the soup where you cannot say, oh, I know this is what made him pull the trigger. You don't do that. You just say, this is, it's like looking at a hurricane, right? You just, you just marvel at the, at the size of it. And that's our obligation, you know, is it's not so much that you're not making judgment. That's ridiculous, right? You tell your kids, do not play in traffic. What part of that don't you understand? <laughs> we can be absolute. We can be black and white. But for the most part, we need to be uh, much more tolerant. Um, Keats wrote a letter about to someone about William Shakespeare. And he said that Shakespeare had negative capability. That's the ability to hold in tension a person's strengths and their weaknesses. The moralist in us wants us to decide, good or bad, right away. But if you keep that intention, then you are serving humanity and serving art and serving human understanding and serving human communication. And so, you know, in our own poor way, we've tried to sort of practice that kind of negative capability from the very first films that we were working on. That was hugely important to us. And so it's there, I think you'll see in in the Ernest Hemingway that's coming up in April on PBS, uh, 5th, 6th, 7th. And you'll see it in the next film on Muhammad Ali and the next film on Benjamin Franklin on the next film on the U.S. and the Holocaust, the next film on LBJ and the Great Society, the next film on the history of the Buffalo, the next one on Leonardo da Vinci, the next one on the American Revolution, and the next one on the history of the lead up to Reconstruction, Reconstruction's collapse, and then African-American life in the decades after Reconstruction. Those are the ones we're all working on. They're all underway and they're all kind of percolating in this brain right here. But, you know, we, we can't wait to, to, to share them with you. And they all share that same willingness to tolerate contradiction. You, you mentioned Edna O'Brien and when you were talking about Hemingway. I texted Bob, Bob late last night and said that Edna O'Brien is the Shelby Foot of the Hemingway documentary. She's our secret weapon. She's unbelievable. Lynn Novick, my co-director, did the interview. It's, it is so great. You know, she came in armed. You know, she said, I want to read this. And at that point, you know, a lot of my colleagues um, will go and say, look, can you get us from uh, paragraph two to paragraph three on page four of episode three? You know, we never do that. We just go and we read. And if you see a talking head in our film, it's a kind of happy accident of us trying to move stuff around and trial and error. So we're not trying to you know, fit something into a particular moment. So you go and she wants to read about Up in Michigan, a short story that we're only vaguely familiar with. Yeah. And she wants to read the opening to A Farewell to Arms, which we are familiar with. And we're very happy to do this. And the cameraman, thank God, decides to follow her conducting of the words, you know, and then up, up to her. And, uh, yeah, she's, she's the, I, I wouldn't even call it the Shelby foot. She's the Edna O'Brien yeah, of the Hemingway <laughs> uh, film. You know? She, 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 had the, there was two things there. There's a moment in the third episode of the series where I had two epiphanies and, and one was really getting to understand the old man in the sea, which I read like 20 years ago. Yes. I, I got it. The second one was that Edna O'Brien is a masterpiece because after realizing what the book was about, finding meaning in it, you cut to her and she says, uh-uh. schoolboy writing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but this is, this is hugely important. If you'll notice Yosa, Mario Vargas Llosa, you know, Nobel laureate in literature, um, loves Old Man in the Sea. And he tells you how to read it both as a kid, you know, when it's assigned in high school and how to read it now, Ben, as an adult and what it means and how the meaning migrates as you yourself undergo your life's journey and that it's this epitome of a concise existential thing. And meanwhile, 
back in For Whom uh, the Bell Tolls, he just finds it cloying, ridiculous, uh, lovemaking, did the earth move? He's cracking up in Spanish and, you know, we're trying to follow him along. Whereas other commentators are saying this is like John McCain, this is the most serious novel. And and Edna is saying stuff about uh, A Farewell to Arms where she said, this could have been written by a woman. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you take that as an insult, but I considered a compliment. I mean, he gets the boy stuff right, she says, about uh, A Farewell to Arms, but what do you remember? A woman dying in childbirth. I mean, this is great. And then you want to let her say, you know, you don't have to like every single piece of Hemingway. We're telling our audience, we're liberating our audience. If Edna doesn't like it, it doesn't mean you have to not like it, but there it is. You you begin to say that art is taste uh, and art falls on people in different ways. But what's so interesting to me in that third episode, after all the rough treatment of wives, uh, particularly his last wife, Mary, gets the worst of it. Um, she's reading The Old Man in the Sea. And she basically says, you know, as he's turning it out and he's leaning over her. And um, and she said, you know, I forgive you for all the terrible things you said to me. And then that shows you that there is just this, this price we pay for being in the presence of a great artist. Not always. Not everyone is a is a jerk. Uh, Hemingway is difficult. And, and a lot of it is born of these deep-seated fears and curiosities about the thing that all of us spend most of our lives avoiding is that none of us get out of here alive. And he's willing to write to that and to try to live to that. But it's hell for the people around him. Hemingway believed that every story, if you follow it long enough, ends in death. Yeah, and it's true. It's the story of us. Fascinated by brutality. Talk, talk for a minute about his fascination with bullfighting and, and his, his desire and, and his need to write about it. Well, it's it's interesting because um, he recognized uh, back then that he was going to have to sell Americans on something that they didn't share with their European ancestors, or most of us have European ancestors, um, and that this was a kind of uh, Western but European mythology sport, uh, that it was a gigantic tragedy, and that Americans would see it as kind of brutality. And we as filmmakers inherited that, that problem. The mythology is, is that the, the, the bull has to die. And how that happens, which is like us, all of us have to die. The art comes from the way in which this inevitability is manipulated by the Toreador and all the others uh, connected with this ritual. But the bull has to die. And so for many of us, there's a kind of gut feeling of repulsion at why we need to do this, particularly in the United States, uh, coming as we do. The same applies to a lesser extent to his fascination with hunting, big game hunting in Africa, hunting all the time, less so in fishing because we're, we're separated from that. But all of these raise real questions. And at the heart of bullfighting is this epic human dynamic of, um, of, of bullfighting in which, you know, as, as one of the commentators says, the bull is a text which you read. And so each one of these is individual. And what Hemingway was trying to do is he got it. He wasn't sure that anyone else would get it. And he tried his best, one of the great explainers of things. I mean, I remember growing up in Ann Arbor, some old hippie said to me in the late 60s, I learned how to roll a cigarette from Ernest Hemingway. We interviewed a woman uh, from then North Vietnam who as a teenage girl went down the Ho Chi Minh Trail to repair it, the damage done by American bombings. Incredibly risky thing. And she took along uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls and said she survived because she had Hemingway telling her how to survive within a war context. I mean, if that doesn't sort of prove his worth now, despite all the of the disqualifying negative things, I don't know what does. And then, of course, it's irresistible. The rubbernecking for the rest of us at this life, um, falling apart, but also coming together, coming together and falling apart is is just, it's irresistible story. You know, and that's why I think maybe getting back, uh, Ben, to your idea of, of uh, a person who didn't have ups and downs, uh, but was the classic antagonist, um, I think can still make a pretty good story eventually. 
thing that gets me, and I think that's beautiful about Hemingway, and you, you capture this, is that Hemingway knew, he really knew that he was flawed. The exchange yes. he has with his with one of his sons where he blames the son for his mother's death. And then the response is his, the letter that his son writes him is so, I mean, just no, no restraints. And Hemingway he, writes back. In and, our opening, he said, you know, you know, I, I want to be great and I want to be good. And I don't know if I can be either. And that's it. That's all of our wish, you know, uh, or maybe not all of our wishes. Not everybody wants to be great or to, I mean, the, the penalty we learn of the greatness, both the greatness that came to him organically from the quality of the writing and the, and the way in which that greatness was expanded by the mythology that, that grew up around him, that he helped to him self-create the lies uh he's not solely responsible everybody was more than willing to go along with it and how that then made it harder for him to do the thing that had made him famous in the first place these are just conundrums i remember when we were making jazz and i interviewed winton marsalis we were talking about something that will take us off on a tangent of a half an hour if i bring up what the subject was but he said something that i've never forgotten he said sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. Now we're back to Keats and Shakespeare and negative. How can you understand that and tolerate that when we want to be, particularly in an age where information is breaking over our heads like a tsunami and we want to ensilo everything? Please tell me this is good, this is bad, this is great, this is not, you know, so that we can categorize for convenience, for commerce, for whatever we do. And things just don't fit that way. You know, we made a big film on country music and people just want to say, oh, country music, that, that, that belongs right here. And you go, no, there are no borders. And, you know, the African-American influence on the birth of country music is extraordinary. And the African-American uh, influence continued. And people listened to African-American music and African-Americans listened. When, when Ray Charles, arguably one of the greatest soul singers ever, um, had creative control of an album for a first time, in 1962, he made modern sounds in country in Western Europe. It is a soul singer singing country songs, Hank Williams songs, others. The number one hit that summer uh, was Don Gibson's I Can't Stop Loving You by Ray Charles. And if you listen to it, it is a soul singer, but it's a country song. And so it just explodes all of the stuff we want to go, no, 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 please fit into this narrow bandwidth so I can understand you and go, that's over with. And you can't do that with anything. And I love that. It's subversive. It's, it, it rebels against all of the tyrannies of the internet, you know, because it's, it's, it's neither and both. It's the, you know, the opposite, uh, a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. Everyone listening, do you drink coffee? Yes. Yes, you do. I'm the only person who doesn't drink coffee very frequently. And I know that everyone else does because everyone else goes, why don't you drink coffee? Well, for those of you guys who- Why don't you drink coffee? This is the only coffee I drink anymore. It's La Cosecha coffee, Bob. La Cosecha. Great coffee. That's right. I'm proud to say that we have, uh, we've had a sponsorship with them for a while. I have bags of their coffee here. And if you're ever stuck inside and you, you want to have some- great way to start off your day what better than having a good nice cup of coffee i had bags of la cosecha coffee but i drink three pots of coffee a day and it went really quick yeah well if you drink a lot of coffee that means you need to keep ordering it and uh here's the beautiful thing for those of you guys who are drinking coffee to get through the day drinking coffee to get up in the morning drinking coffee for any reason and you want a good cup you can drink that coffee Support a small business that does good work and and trade does fair trade and takes care of the people that they work with. They have direct relationships with their farmers uh, that they buy the beans from, and they do a fantastic job. La Cosecha Coffee Roasters. That's L A C O S E C H A C O F F E E. La Go to their website. Help out this small business. Get yourself some good coffee. And if you enter promo code. The letters RTN and the number 10, that's RTN10. You can get 10% off your coffee and you can feel good about drinking it as you get stronger. Bob, does coffee make you stronger? Mm, I think it makes you smarter. Mm. What do you. I'm sorry. It's all right. So, so. 
<laughs> you're basically like, I've just been trying to figure out why he's not very smart. And the cognitive is... <laughs> I didn't say that. You asked me a question, I answered. That's fine. Honestly. No, uh, that's that's an acceptable answer. I can't tell you what to say, Bob. But I can say that you should go to lacosechacoffee.com and uh, order some Lacosecha coffee. Our man Jamie Jeske out there holding the fort down. We got to keep our small businesses going uh, and we love them. So lacosechacoffee.com. Promo code RTN and the number 10 and uh, order some coffee. So to continue along with that, Ben and I have long believed, I mean, really part of the reason why we started this podcast is that there's a good, a bad and an ugly to American history. Of course. And our job is not to agree with it all or to love it all, but somehow we need to hold it all within ourselves and, and find some kind of uh, reconciliation and acceptance of it. Look where we're at right now. And this is essentially what we've been talking about for the past half hour. But, you know, we think about the Civil War, the incredible documentary you made about the Civil War and what's happening now with monuments and the ideas of, of, uh, of, of how to think about the Confederacy and how to think about um, uh, the war itself. Uh and of course, we see it in every aspect of our culture and our lives. How should we look to these uglier moments in American history with uh, understanding and and acceptance? How can we do that? It's just, it's the human, we have to do that. We have no choice. If you think um, we have labored for too long in our schools and elsewhere with a kind of sanitized Madison Avenue uh, view of uh of American history. And it's just not that. But you then don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, the exceptionalism, which we almost singularly claim for ourselves, uh, doesn't look so great these days, but it's had lots of problems in various times. And sometimes it's the recognition of that. It's it, We were speaking about it before we started, is that we, you know, the pursuit of happiness is like a red herring, right? When Thomas Jefferson wrote it, and it was agreed that the pursuit of happiness, meaning you don't get it, you try for it, right? It's always an objective that you have. Um, and happiness was not the acquisition of objects in a marketplace of things. It was lifelong learning in a marketplace of ideas. That's what the founders meant by happiness. But we've, we've kind of polluted, well, I deserve to be happy. You know, we have two kinds of freedom, right? my freedom, what I want, and the collective freedom, what we need. You know, we have laws, right? You can't drive on the left side of the road, right? You got to drive on the right side of the road. You've got to register that car. You've got to do all sorts of little things in which we all willingly submit, but find out some other area and nobody wants to do anything. This is impinging on my freedom. So we've had great tensions over all of that. And we've tended to ignore, it is very human to do this. It isn't just American. Uh, we have tended to ignore the 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 things, the violence that takes place. That is part of our nature. The wars almost immediately become sentimentalized with treacly stuff, and we forget the extraordinary cost. You know, only mothers really remember what the cost of war is, and it becomes incumbent upon us, as we have done in the Civil War or World War II in a film that came out in 2007 called The War, or in Vietnam War that came out in 2017, we're now working on the American Revolution, to don't soft-pedal it. You know, the Civil War wasn't a civil war. It was a sectional war, right? With the exception of Missouri and parts of Kansas, there's not a lot of civilian deaths, which is what happens in civil wars. It's a sectional war. This group believes this. This group doesn't believe this. We're leaving. No, you're not. This is the Civil War. Uh, you know, the, the, the siege of Atlanta killed less than 20 civilians. The, ba- the civilian casualties in the greatest battle in the Western Hemisphere, if you just limit it to the landmass of North America and South America, is Gettysburg. And there are two civilian deaths. Two. Right? But the American Revolution, now that's a civil war. We always say brother against brother, you know, maybe. But in the revolution, Benjamin Franklin's son, William, was the royal governor of New Jersey, was deposed, continued to work against the independence, was put in jail, was released, presumed that he would go to England, stayed, started a terrorist organization that killed um what we would call patriots, and um, tried to reconcile afterwards with his dad who said, 
NFW, <laughs> right? And uh, it's pretty, it's pretty shocking on both the son's part and the father's part. And it's, um, it makes for a great, great story. But I think it, it goes back to the fact that we need to be able to have a complicated picture. We need to also be able to grow so that the whole manifestation of this monument stuff, I, I'm happy to grow. I, I'm happy to understand those monuments got put up, most of them, in the period after the collapse of Reconstruction. They were part of the expression, the billboards of the reimposition of white supremacy, of Jim Crow, of lynching as a legitimate uh, expression of justice, of the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. The, the, the flag, the Confederate flag was not the Confederate flag. It is a battle flag of the Army of the Northern Virginia, which was adopted by the Ku Klux Klan, one of many. It is not the official flag of the Confederacy. That's a different flag. It went into the state flags of all the Confederacy. It's come out now of all of them, including finally, thank God, Mississippi, which was the oldest. But when you look about when it went in there, it was, you know, the statues went up either in that post reconstruction period or in, in uh, reaction to um, Brown versus Board of Education, right? A lot of those Dixie, uh, the, 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 the Confederate battle flag that went into the state flags of the Southern states came in after 1954. And the only thing that happened in 1954 is the Supreme Court said that separate but equal isn't right, as Plessy versus Ferguson in 1898 said it was. And so you've got, you know what? And people say, they're taking away my history. It's not. You're actually pulling the lens back and you're having a much more inclusive history. And how can you take, just take South Carolina where the majority of citizens were African-Americans, right? You know, the Mississippi, the same thing. I mean, how are we suddenly, if we're, if we're the land of the free and we have 4 million people owned by other people, oops, you know, this is February. This is black history month and it's the shortest and the coldest month. It, black history is every single day because if you start a country and the guy who articulates our creed distilling a century of enlightenment thinking into one sentence that begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and he owns more than 200 human beings, oops, he doesn't see the contradiction. He doesn't see the hypocrisy and more importantly, doesn't see fit to free any of those people in his lifetime. And he sets in motion an American narrative that is, is, is a priori forced as it had been since 1619, you know, to deal with it. But that's deal with it. I mean, right now we have three viruses going on, right? Three viruses. One is this year plus old COVID-19 virus. Devastating, devastating. Once in a century thing. We also have a 402-year-old virus of white supremacy, of racial injustice, of racism, of hatred, based because it, it's easier to find evil in the other and to judge people based, as Dr. King said, on the color of their skin, not the content of their character. Now I've flipped his statement. Um, and then we've got an age-old human virus that's around us, which is the virus of lying, of misinformation, of conspiracy, of paranoia. This is not American. This is everybody. And when those three viruses come together the way we are now, it is a recipe for disaster. And the only thing that sets us free is A, being honest about it, and B, telling us that none of these things are without some kind of precedent, even though the times are unprecedented. And that's our job, your job and my job is just to tell a very complex and important history that delivers us to this moment. And you go... Well, if history doesn't repeat itself, if we're not to condemn, if we're not condemned to repeat what we don't remember, what is it about? So you go back to Ecclesiastes, right? That's the Old Testament. And it says, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun, which means that human nature doesn't change and that it superimposes itself over the seemingly random chaos of events. And so we see patterns, we see motifs, we see recurrences of, 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 of behaviors. We, 
we, we, we hear the rhymes. And that's what we're obligated to talk about. And nothing's off the table. Nothing's off the table. You point out this, this what I think is beautiful, the way you said it, this idea that it's the pursuit of happiness and it's not, not the, the guarantee of happiness. No. And when you, when you perceive it like that, though, if, if, if you read it as the guarantee of happiness, then any suffering is therefore, is, is you being denied something that you think you're, you owe. But suffering is something that's universal. And, suffering's and, universal, and we're, none of us are getting out of this alive. So there's the ultimate approaching suffering that people like Hemingway are going to try to deal with or not deal with, as the case may be. And um, we, our lives are more defined by the troubles that we've had. My mother died when I was 11 years old of cancer after a, a many-year illness. I would not be here if she had not died. I spent my entire professional life as my late father-in-law, a psychologist, said, waking the dead. He said, you make Abraham Lincoln and Jackie Robinson come alive. Who do you think you're really trying to wake up? Now, that may be dime store psychology. It's simplified, but it, but it, it has been, that has been the motivating aspect of my life. There's never been a day since April 28th, 1965, when my mother died, that I haven't thought about her and thought about the, the thing and missed her, you know, missed her. And so it's all there. You know, it's, it's that, that's who we are. I, I interrupted you, Ben, but I, I, I just think that we are, we're defined by the way we handle the tough stuff. When it's smooth sailing, it's smooth sailing. We can enjoy running down the dock and jumping into the lake with abandon, but it's often when something comes up short and every one of us, the three of us and anyone listening to us knows exactly what I'm talking about. You didn't interrupt me. You actually answered the next part that I was going to ask, which was, you know, and when you find people who have that that idea that they deserve to be happy and they look for the cause of their suffering because they don't understand that it's it's a part of life, then they can't see the the dark in the past. You know, and you've pointed out all of these things that, you know, I tell my students that saying you love the country if you don't know its past is like saying you're in love with a woman when you've only seen her online dating profile. Right. <laughs> you don't know her. True love comes when you realize the dark and you know that you're better than that and you can make each other better. And yeah. so I was going to, what, what my question was going to be was how do you, how do you find when you acknowledge the dark, how do you find meaning in that and value in that and still say that you love, even though you acknowledge the dark and you already answered that question. So thank you. Yeah, no, you have to, Win Winton calls that, that, um, impending death, the kind of wolf at the door. And if you think about it, if human beings were really fully conscious of the fact that we don't get out of this alive, it's very reasonable to assume that you could be, you know, lying on the floor, you know, in the fetal position, right? But we don't. We raise children, we plant gardens, we make films, we write symphonies, we, we, we do things that offer the only corrective there is, which is to somehow bring meaning here. And that means you have to, with regard to our business, synthesize all of these different impulses, not just good and bad, but all of the myriad shades of gray in between and negotiate something that commends you to this lifetime and to the people that that you leave behind, right? And so, you know, my mother's name was Lila, L-Y-L-A, a 19th century spelling of it. Her mother had been named Lila. And for many, many years, the word Lila was draped in black crepe, right? We never said it. We said mommy, you know, even as, as adults, as older men, my brother and I said mommy. Because, of course, she left when, when you know, we were 11 and 10. Um and in 2011, my oldest daughter, having never met her grandmother, named her first child Lila. And now we say it all the time, and birds sing, and flowers bloom, and uh, she's 10 years old, and it is a glorious, glorious thing. And so that, in my own little tiny way, is such a huge part it's an anecdote to you. It's, it's maybe a boring diversion to anyone else. I cannot begin to tell you how central it was. I was on a Zoom call yesterday and Lila came in 
and was like, oops. And her mom said, no, 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 come in. And I'm going, hi, sweetie, it's granddaddy. And, you know, we, it, there she is, Lila, Lila, Lila. Didn't say that. Didn't that, that meant that was never spoken for decades. I'm not tearing up. I've just got allergies. That's all. It's <laughs> really beautiful. It is. Uh, you just ticked off uh, about seven projects that you're currently working on. Yeah. I have to, I have two questions here. The first one is I have to know, did the American revolution project, was it born out of the Ben Franklin project or was it the opposite? It's neither. Uh, I'll tell you. So I did the civil war when the civil war was done. I looked and I said, I'm not doing another war. I mean, I know we'll pass through wars and we'll treat them, you know, for five minutes, world war one or whatever, but I'm not doing another war. It's just, it's hard. You know, the, the, the soldiers, Southern as well as Northern, when they'd been in combat, the description was they'd seen the elephant. And my only assumption is, is that they were trying to think of the most exotic, non-normal thing. And so combat was like seeing the elephant. And for those of us trying to take those gruesome old photographs and, and make a story of it, we'd seen the elephant. It was too much. But at the end of the 90s, I learned that something ridiculous, some huge portion of graduating high school seniors, you know, diploma in hand going out in the world, thought we fought with the Germans against the Russians in the Second World War. And that 1,000 veterans of the Second World War were dying each day in America. Now that number is way down because actuarially it's it's so little. And I said, we got to do World War II. So we started, you know, 1999 to work on World War II and it came out in 2007 before it was done, before I'd locked it. I just turned to Lynn Novak, my um, uh, uh, producing and directing partner. And I just said, we're doing Vietnam. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not ignoring Korea, but we're doing Vietnam. That's the toughest one to do. And so we worked, you know, uh, from the, as I said, from the end of 2006 to uh, 2017 to do it. Before, well before that was done, while I was looking at maps of the Yadrang Valley and trying to figure out the extent to which the, these maps, these complex computer graphic maps could make things come alive without reconstruct uh, reenactments, which I don't like. I, I said, we need to do the American Revolution. I didn't know that knowing about the revolution would be hugely critical in the upcoming decades. So by 2015, I had already committed in my heart to the American Revolution, and it'll be the hardest project we've ever done. Meanwhile, on a parallel track, I'm a huge admirer and friend of the historian Walter Isaacson, who's written many wonderful books, two of which are Benjamin Franklin and Leonardo da Vinci both of which are irresistible. And in fact, Da Vinci, we shouldn't say ever say Da Vinci. That's like saying, you know, of Walpole, that would be my name because <laughs> I live in Walpole, New Hampshire. Um, so Leonardo is that um, it'll be our first non-American topic and what a protean uh, figure to do it. But it, it, it's the exception that will continue to prove the rule. Because if I were given a thousand years to live and Bob and Ben, I will not. I would never run out of topics in American history. You clearly don't do it all yourself. No, no, no. Thank you for saying that. So I am, let's talk about the how many crews do you have that, that are working on these projects simultaneously? So right now, there are four different producing teams in which I'm the director. And in one other case, I am the co-director. That's not true. Two other cases. I'm the co-director with Lynn Novick and another case where it's Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein and I are doing it. Um, but there are other uh, projects and my daughter, Sarah, and her husband, David McMahon, um, are, they are also co-directors. We're working on Muhammad Ali. Uh, that will be out next after Hemingway. And uh, they are doing with me the Leonardo uh, da Vinci uh, film. And the Emancipation to Exodus film about mostly about Reconstruction and post-Reconstruction America. There's another crew working on the Buffalo. There's a kind of hybrid crew that is Benjamin Franklin, but will add to do revolution because there's economies of scale, but this is only recognized long after both projects were underway 
that that it was good to have the same people looking for pictures, paintings, drawings, maps for Franklin would be a big help to the revolution team that's going to come later. So the revolution of Franklin will come out in um, probably in in 2022, and the revolution will come out in 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 25, which the 250th anniversary of Lexington and Concord. I, in my classes, I, needless to say, we, God I, willing, God, 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 God willing, willing. I mean, I, the biggest, the, you know, I wake up at three and I woke up this morning at three 30 and I went, and I was all, it was just revolution. Like, Oh my God, you know, needless to say, I was pretty excited about this interview. And I mentioned it in one of my classes that I'm teaching here from the home studio. Uh, top of building in Brooklyn. Uh, so, um, but what I said to my students was, I'm interviewing Kim Burns, and most of them know knew you, right? And I said, but we've got a well, we've got a lot of audio and video majors there. And what I said was, uh, so you guys have heard of the Ken Burns effect, right? And a couple of my students who do who are doing video editing were like, yeah, of course. And they they at first didn't know your name right off the bat, and then they were like, oh yeah. And this is <laughs> something that you're. This is this is. You're, this will be there. This yeah. is something so it's there. The ben, it's a technological tale wagging the dog. I'll tell you what happened is that I had the great privilege of being friends with Steve Jobs, who is an amazing human being. And I stayed with him and his wife and, and kids when I stayed in the Valley, uh, in you know, two or three times um, uh, over several years, even when he was getting sick. Um, but when the first time we met, he called me up and he said, here in New Hampshire. And he said, can you come and meet me? And I said, that's me knocking at the door. So I fly out to Cupertino, California, and I go inside. And he's got these two very eager, classic, nerdy engineer developers. And he said, we loved your Civil War thing. We've been working on, and all your stuff, and we've been working on this thing that allows people to pan and zoom in their photographs, right? Now, I am the world's <laughs> biggest Luddite. And I kind of go, uh-huh. And they show it to me, and it kind of is working. It's a prototype. It's not even beta, right? And it, it kind of works, and I kind of get it. And it says, you can upload. And I go, well, I have no idea what upload means. Or you can download whatever it is. You can do this with your stuff. And, um, and, and, and I said, well, that's great, uh, not really knowing what I was doing. And he said, yeah, so we'd like to keep our working title. And I said, and I said, what is it? And he goes, we call it the Ken Burns effect. And I said, I, I, I don't do commercial endorsements. And he goes, what? You know? So he dismissed the guys and we go back into his office and we talk for about an hour and I tried to explain who I was. And um, there's a lot of people who've said, oh, you should have asked for, you know, a tenth of a penny for every time it was used. I said, then he would have called it the pan and zoom effect. <laughs> I said, you just don't understand this person. And I didn't realize that now, but I was just, I said, no. And he said, well, what, what can we do? And then I thought, I said, maybe I don't want to get paid, but what if you gave me a lot of in-kind, hardened software that I can give to nonprofits? And I think a couple of computers fell off the truck in advance that went to our office because we were so, you know, impoverished of that kind of stuff. Um, but we gave a lot of, you know, Final Cut Pro to colleges and we gave a lot of, uh, of hardware to various nonprofits. And that gave me a kind of plausible deniability. But uh, I now know my kids use it all the time. My younger kids use it all the time. But I now know how many bar mitzvahs and uh, vacations and weddings and, you know, whatever it is uh, I've saved because of the, you know, the relentless. It is a thin, superficial, no, no, uh, nothing pejorative about that version of what we're trying to do, which is wake up an old photograph, trust that that photograph is a representation of a now and that, that, that horse and buggy are passing through that scene. That car is whizzing by, the train is going by, the troops are tramping, the cannon are firing, the ice in the bar, uh, in the glass, in the bar, in the jazz club is tinkling. All of those things we try to listen to as well as see and treat an old photograph the way a feature film waker would a master shot, having a long, a medium, a close, an extra close, a tilt, a pan, a reveal, zooming out, and inserts of details, you know, whatever it might be. And that's what we do. That's how we re-photograph the photographs. And it's an attempt to wake it up. It's an attempt to say, we trust you to be... Um, a representation of a very full and vivid present. 
And it is the great arrogance of this moment that thinks that we're somehow better than previous moments because we've survived. People lived as complicated lives as you and I are living. They don't know how to reboot a computer, but you don't know how to shoe a horse. <laughs> right? <laughs> but the con the depth of conversation, the complexity of love, the the dimensions of suffering have been around for as long as there have been human beings. And we kid ourselves and we kid ourselves all the time that somehow we're better because we know more than our grandparents, you know. You know, they, we, we have an expression now being woke. Every generation has had an expression of being woke, including our grandparents' generation, you know. So it's it's just, you know. It, it's great that you, you uh, quoted Ecclesiastes because we have these right now. We are all, you're in New Hampshire, Ben's in Tennessee, I'm in North Carolina, but we're here like we're in the same room. Ben's, so the in, Ben's in Brooklyn. Yeah. Ben's in Brooklyn. That's right. Brooklyn, <laughs> Tennessee, Brooklyn Tennessee. Brooklyn, Tennessee. Uh, but but the technology changes and, and you could say it, it advances. It surely has in many ways, but the human heart has not changed. Not changed. And you can hear all. people talk about the when the telegraph came in, oh, this is the death of letters. Oh, this is going to kill human communication. Nobody's going to write a book anymore. Nobody's going to read a book anymore. I mean, it's it's just plus a change, you know, and this is what it is. So people say, wow, what do you do now? And you go, you just use the tools you have. Is it an email? Sure. Okay. It's an email. Is it a newspaper? Yeah, it's still newspapers. You know, is it online? Maybe. Uh, whatever it is, you're just going to, the stuff that we collect in order to tell the stories of the past are, are, is just stuff. It's the question is how you tell that story that, that men brought up at the beginning. You know, how do you include all that stuff? So you have a body of work now. That ha that is educating old and young. Talk about Project Unum for a minute before yeah, we so, before so we wrap Unum, up. So Unum, you know, that comes from my love of that late historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. said in the late eighties, "We suffer today from too much pluribus and not enough Unum." You know, <laughs> there's not a person on earth uh, or in this country that doesn't agree. And for those who don't know, "E pluribus Unum" is the Latin motto of the United States, which means "Out of many." one and we are very much missing the one right now. And so Unum was started several years ago, supported by the philanthropist David Rubenstein. And it's an attempt to curate those evergreen themes that appear, the rhymes of American history that Mar as Mark Twain would say, and that we would be able to deal with stories and connect them to the present in a way we don't ever do in our films. But to see that all of the films, indeed all of American history, is a very complicated warp and woof. That's the expression of, of weaving, right? Of, 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 of threads going one way and threads going the other. And we have many intersections in our film and we just feel it was important so that um, when Charlottesville happened uh, four years ago or three and a half years ago, um, we brought out in Unum one of the last comments in the Civil War series, you know, in which Barbara Fields, a distinguished Columbia University scholar, says, you know, if people are living on the street and some people are living in homes, the Civil War is still going on. It's still going on and regrettably can still be lost because there you have – in Charlottesville, Virginia, a hugely important center, Thomas Jefferson's home, where the first, you know, you know, secular university is founded, a temple to the Enlightenment, are people, you know, that are espousing Nazi and racist uh, views uh, that are antithetical to a huge majority of American citizens, and were condoned by the president of the United States who said there are good people on both sides. There, there weren't. Um, there are aspects of those people that are good. Maybe they don't beat their dogs or, or, or their wives, but these are abhorrent views. And we, we need to res remind people of what the American story has been. It's not saying that these views have never been there. And that's why you begin to see how evergreen Barbara Field's comment is and so many others. Uh, this past summer, after George Floyd, we trotted out uh, 
several comments that the writer, the late writer James Baldwin said in our film on the Statue of Liberty, one of which he recites the, the second sentence and when he gets to All Men Are Created Equal, he says, obviously that proclamation did not include me. But almost no one ever asked themselves, what is liberty? What is liberty? And then later on he says, it's a bitter joke, meaning nothing to black people. In fact, that statue faces outward, supposedly welcoming, but that's been in huge debate ever since too. Um, we're making a film on the United States in the Holocaust right now. And, you know, it's a war between Emma Lazarus poem, let's open the door, and between another poem by a, a, a white supremacist who said, close it, let's keep all these other filthy people out of here. Let's keep it American. And this has been a tension that you know, continues to this day with the policies of the Trump administration and Stephen Miller that we're trying to figure out how we how we find a um, an American way through that represents consensus and represents the right thing to do, and how do we support the moral the, the implied moral underpinnings of our government when we failed throughout? We have never included African-Americans in any significant way. And when we do, it's a, it's a kind of phony tokenism uh, that has been in every aspect of life that we're three white males here. And, you know, we have no idea and, and need to shut up and listen more um, what it is to be redlined in housing for generations what it is to be paid less or to have a lesser job or to not be promoted or to not be able to get in to someplace despite your jobs. And if you are getting in, being accused of it being some sort of, uh, you know, corrupt devil's bargain of affirmative action. It's, it's just we, we, only this pandemic has shown us that it's risky to go to the convenience store. We never knew that until now. But there's not an African-American that doesn't know that it's risky to go to the convenience store. It's risky to jog in a neighborhood. It's risky to be driving down the road and have your taillight out. I've been stopped by the police for speeding. I've been stopped by the police for not signaling a turn. I've been stopped. By, nothing ever happened to me. There are a lot of people who turn up dead because of the color of their skin for just those things. And, um, and that's what Barbara Fields means. And until that's addressed... You know, we're only hoping to be what Lincoln said we could be, which is the last best hope of Earth. That was his State of the Union, or what was called message to Congress in those days, as the Constitution requires in December of 62. You know, fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. But then he also says, he can't escape history, but he said, the dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. As our case is new, let us think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves. Don't make yourself a slave to ideas, and then we can save our union. What he went on to say was the last best hope of earth. That's the business I'm in, holding our feet to the fire of that promise. Well, Ken Burns, Ben and I know enough to know uh, the quote to end an interview on. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to end on Lincoln, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you so much. This is amazing. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for really your fun. work. So grateful for your time. We will continue to look look to you and your work as we can when, as we enter this and move through this fourth great crisis. Yeah, uh, in yeah, our no, nation's we'll get history. Through. We'll get through if we remember the unum and not the pluribus. Right? We're all in this together. What I understood is that I have for more than 40 years been making films about the US, but I have also been making films about us. The lowercase, two letter, plural pronoun, and also we and our. All the intimacy of that, all the majesty, all the complexity, all the contradictions, all the controversy of the United States of America. But the one thing I've learned is that there's only us, no them. There's no them. There's only us. And if people can live that, then you've already gone a long way to, as Lincoln said, disenthralling yourself, making you less of a slave to the ideas that limit us and, and, and keep us down and keep us from communicating with one another as equals. 
Thank you for listening to The Road to Now. The Road to Now was hosted and produced by Bob Crawford and Benjamin Sawyer. This episode was edited by Gary Fletcher, and today's music is by Paul DeFiglia. We'd like to say a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon with a special shout-out to our Washingtonians, Tanya Marsh, Mary Hocking, Paul Ayler, Tim and Caitlin Wells, Fig White, Peggy Donica, Matt Williams, Peggy Murray, Team Martin, Julia Adams, and Ann Williams and Frank Edwards. If you'd like to join us on Patreon, get bonus content, get extra videos, get access to our back catalog, and join us for our trivia rounds, just go to patreon.com slash road to now. If you want to know more about our podcast and quickly search all the content, check out theroadtonow.com, our website, which is really good. Why is it so good? Because it was designed by Seven Ages Design. Need a good website? Hit them up. If you like what you're hearing here, please take a minute and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get The Road to Now. Spread the word to your friends because podcasting, it's not just on the radio or TV. You can't just come across it. People know about our podcast because you helped us spread the word. So thank you. We'll leave you with some more music from our Ramser Management Artist of the Month, Amethyst Kia. Her new track's out this week, so go to Spotify and you can get this whole thing without me talking over the first part. For Bob Crawford, I'm Ben Sawyer. Take care. <laughs>